welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Ron, for getting together with me. Sure. Looking forward to it. You know, well, maybe first just to introduce you. Mm. I've known you from when you were a pastor at Windsor Baptist Church, not far from here. Mm -hmm. And then you went from there to the Harbor Community Church. Yes, yes. Are you still a pastor there? Uh, No, I've actually retired um, the 1st of May first part of May from that. Uh, in fact, this Sunday, uh, we are going to be back there for their 10th anniversary. And, okay. Uh, but that, that uh, we will be there as guests for that day. Looking forward to it. So. And then you also work with the um, Baptist Home, Nursing Home, is that the name of What's the we're, we're called the Baptist Home, but we, Baptist are, home. Okay. we are a collection of... Uh, uh, long-term care facilities around the state. We have uh, uh, independent living, assisted living, intermediate care, and then some skilled nursing on uh, four campuses. And what's uh, your position there? I am the director of advancement. Okay, which means <laughs> most folks most folks ask, what does that mean? In some ways, it has a great deal to do with uh, raising funds for the home. Okay, um, but in general, it has a, a great deal to do with uh, advancing and communicating about our ministry uh, around okay. around the state and the Midwest. Hmm. Okay, so. that's interesting. Well, you know, you were just talking about um, aging and just mm-hmm. understanding aging, and you mentioned a lot of our understanding about aging comes from either a secular viewpoint or a progressive Christianity viewpoint. Right. Right. And you said secular at best or progressive at worst. Yes. And you were kind of talking a little bit about what you mean by progressive Christianity. Um, so go ahead and just kind of explain what you, again, what you mean by progressive. Okay. Um, I am no expert on, on defining it. Uh, there are those who uh, use that moniker themselves uh, quite proudly. Uh, when it comes to aging, uh, the theology that you find um, in progressive uh, Christian writing um, treats Scripture as um, the seasoning to the concepts rather than the foundation of it. Um, oftentimes they, they will cherry-pick various passages about, about what it looks like to age uh, in Scripture and then their basic root of what they of how they define aging, and how they define um, a Christian view of aging, uh, is all very much uh, driven by secular culture, uh, by secular uh, psychiatry and psychology, uh, with very little real understanding of aging as not just a part of the human existence. But as the culmination of our human existence, um, you know, as a, as a Christian, uh, the aging process is not just something that we, we have to struggle with. It is the vehicle through which we will return to our Father, uh, barring his uh, direct return here to the earth. So it's not something to be um, viewed as an enemy. 
But most of secular writing in particular uh, deals with aging as a disease and a disease process. And most Christian authors that I have read, particularly in the last 20 years, they use that as their foundation, that, that aging is a disease process and um, we need to find a way and a solution to that aging process to make getting older easier. And I, that's impossible. You know, even kind of going before going into like aging, which is interesting, I'd like to talk about just the idea of progressive Christianity is kind of interesting to me because I'm in a conservative mm-hmm. uh, group and that's the people I know and the circles. And like, so, but I hear people, you know, I hear uh, referred to as the, you know, liberal Christianity or progressive. So, um, what groups would that be? Um, who are they? Are is it certain denominations, or is it um, people within our denomination? I, I think it is more a, an element within many denominations. You know, uh, if you would a more liberal wing of a particular kind of denomination. Uh, for example, in the broader Baptist life, you have a Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, which is a very conservative uh, organization. And then you would have the um, um, Alliance of Baptists, which is an extraordinarily uh, liberal organization. And you can go back to the 1970s, and these two groups were a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Mm-hmm. But now uh, they have gone separate ways very distinctly. Um, you know, the Alliance of Baptists um, are advocating for um, ordination of transgendered persons and, and things like that. And, and they, they approach everything from a standard of um, social justice first. Mm-hmm. And then, then go to Scripture and only look at those Scriptures that advocate for social justice and say, this is that. And that really misses the greater point uh, and, and is a pretty terrible way of doing theology. Is the main difference um, just the, how they would hold Scripture, the, their view of Scripture? Is that kind of like what the main difference and how everything else flows out of it? I think so. I think that's the root of it. Uh, you know, uh, others might say differently to that, but I think the main issue is What's the role of Scripture in guiding our principles of, of thought and living? Okay. It seems like people who think along those lines are, are pretty much a minority, or that's just my impression, because, um, you know, just in general, when I think of churches and just churches that I'm familiar with, and I'm not that familiar with that many, but... They seem pretty like-minded in in general. Um, so is this um, a pretty small group who um, th- you know think this way and, and so forth? I, I would I would say so. Yes, uh, you know, in my work for the Baptist Home, I, I travel around the state mm-hmm. and uh, I'm in various churches 
um, speaking to various pastors for sure on a weekly basis. And in the state of Missouri, I would uh, I would say there are probably five or six uh, churches that I would label uh, as progressive, uh, a part of the progressive Christian movement. And they're not uh, Southern Baptist churches, right? No. no okay. They probably had their roots in Southern Baptist okay. life or American Baptist life. Okay. And would they now be... Um Independent, or do they have their own denomination? Or? They, uh, they probably, probably most of them would be a part of things like uh, the Alliance of Baptists or the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, something okay. like that, or or even the American Baptist Church. Okay. They would still be a part of that. Yeah. So even though they're kind of a small group compared to more conservative mm-hmm. uh, numbers of churches. Are you saying that they have a, a disproportionate influence in like our the thoughts about aging and the material that's been put out and so forth? Specifically, when it comes to the issues of aging, they do have a outsized influence. Okay. And uh, some of that, uh, I think, uh, lies at the feet of conservative Christians. Um, one of the most disappointing conversations I ever had uh, was in about 2003. I had just become a trustee for the Baptist home. And um, there were some pretty serious legal and theological issues in Missouri Baptist life at that time. And I was asked to meet with a well-known pastor. And we met. And uh, he just described to me uh, his view of aging and his view of aging from the standpoint of what our denomination ought to be doing. And his statement to me was, I don't think that our convention ought to be involved in spending money on uh, the elderly. They're all Christians anyway. That was his first uh, principle. And he said, and secondly, the government will take care of them uh, as they age. And uh, it was a really heartbreaking uh, discussion. And I said, I I would like for you to consider putting any other generational name in what you just said and see how that feels when you say it. Uh, You could put youth in that. You could put um, uh, parents in that. You could put children in that. I said, it just doesn't fit. And I said, secondly, uh, have you been in a facility designed by and funded by the federal government for the aged. And I said, if you have, you'd have a very different view because it's, it's completely devoid of dealing with a human being as if they have, they are a person, um, who's anything but old. All right. The, the typical way of dealing with the elderly is almost like a warehouse concept. And we're just here to help them while they move on and get out of the way. Uh, and that was I, this was from a prominent Christian leader in Baptist life in Missouri. And I, I left the restaurant that day quite uh, disheartened, uh, but also quite driven that um, there's got to be a better answer in helping people as they age. So what's the viewpoint of aging um, that you believe is the correct viewpoint, 
you know, compared to um, what's common? You know, you were starting to explain it, but could you? Uh, well, I, let me just say what, what is common. Okay. Uh, what is common is that aging uh, is a symptom of health and that the way you address it is you, you address it like a disease process. Uh, if you have a bad gallbladder, you take it out. Um, if you have um, leukemia, you treat that with various drugs to, to starve out that blood disorder. Um, there's a really good book, by, by the way, it's part of the illustration of what I was trying to say earlier. It's a really great book written by a surgeon uh, from New York City. His name is Atul Gawande, and it's called Being Mortal. And now, Dr. Gawande doesn't write from a Christian perspective at all. His faith heritage is Hindu. and uh, But he writes as a skilled surgeon who's uh, looked at how we treat aging uh, as a disease process. And it's a fascinating book. And he, one of his conclusions is we've entrusted the care the, the not not just the medical care, but the care for for aging humanity to an industry and to professionals who one have no plan and two they have no knowledge that they don't have a plan. Um, startling statistic: eighty three percent of Medicare expenses occur in the last four months of an individual's life. Hmm often on surgeries and processes Mm -hmm. that have no hope of restoring health or even um, aiding in one's health. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the biggest part of that expense is that person is removed from everyone and everything they know and understand and housed in a nursing home or uh, a rehab center uh, to spend out their last days there. The highest daily expenditure for Medicare is for hospice. Hmm. It's way over $225 a day hmm. in homes. Wow. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's more than they Medicare would reimburse for hospitalization. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's not a lot of medical care that is done for that $200-plus per day. So you say it's like... Viewed as a disease. Uh-huh. So, what do you mean by that word compared to like how you would you think it should be viewed? Well, I, I think I think viewing aging as a disease focuses purely on the obvious and significant slowing down of the human body, and, and there are disease processes that occur as we age. Mm-hmm. Um, coronary disease, diabetes, uh, other issues that come along, uh, uh, cognitive issues of uh, Alzheimer's and dementia, Parkinson's and things like that. So there is a disease process, but it's as if there's a there's a an inadvertent switch in our mindset, and all of a sudden this person is a diabetic. They're not Jane. This person is someone with Alzheimer's. They're not Fred. Uh, they are a person with coronary disease. They're not Ralph. Uh, and so we focus on what makes those physical statistics improved. How do we get their blood sugar lower? How do we lower their blood pressure? How do we improve their 
cognition. Uh, and, and those things are all good and necessary. But oftentimes we do that at the expense of this is Jane, this is Ralph, this is Fred. Hmm. And these are human beings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in, in the Baptist home, we treat the person's physical needs. Mm-hmm. But we treat them first as a fellow brother and sister in Christ. We do not escape our responsibility to be a follower of Christ because we've reached a certain age or have declined to a certain level of health. Mm-hmm. You know, we still have the responsibility to grow in the likeness of Christ, to love our brother and sister, uh, to be a part of the mission of Christ in the community around us. Those responsibilities are never removed from a person as they age in Scripture. Uh, in fact, the whole concept of retirement is foreign uh, to a biblical mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't come around until the mid-20th century. Uh, mm-hmm. And... Uh, so what we try to do is to look at the person as a whole, all right? Now, obviously, uh, there's a difference physically between a 40-year-old and a 90-year-old. Mm-hmm. And you have to deal with those differences. But you also have to deal with that human being. We, we use the phrase soul care a lot. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is our job uh, as a result we have full-time campus pastors on each of our campuses, okay? And their job is to be the spiritual um, guide of our aging population. They serve much like a pastor in a local church. In fact, our uh, campuses are about the size of a typical church. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they are there to share, the, share a message with them, to have worship with them to lead Bible studies with them, but even more importantly, to have that pastoral role as they go through life, to be with them and discuss uh, the vagaries uh, of aging and what does this look like? What does this mean? Um, I remember one lady at our Ironton campus, I would go by her room and every morning she would, she would say to me, I woke up again. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm here. And that's not a physical question. Mm-hmm. That's a spiritual right. question. And uh, how do you help someone who, at that point in her life, she was bedridden. Mm-hmm. Where does she find her purpose? Same place I find mine. Mm-hmm. It has to be in Christ. Now, her purpose and my purpose are going to express themselves differently, but ultimately they have the same responsibility to them. So it sounds like, on one hand, um, the viewpoint of aging is... Well, it's just looking at the physical, and it's just a matter of um, taking care of problems, addressing them, prolonging the physical body as long as you know practically possible, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, and that's just the cold medical side of it. Yes, but you're referring to more of the person as a sanctity of human life, so to speak. Yes, and that that's being addressed. So, yeah, I can see, like, from just a purely secular point that's not dealing with the, the value of a human being, then what else is there to look at but the, mm-hmm. the body itself? Mm-hmm. And that this aging process is just something that's going to take place. So in 
ministering to the the human, what differences does that make in the medical procedures at the very end? Um, if it's not just uh, prolonging things or whatever, um, then how are things dealt with and treated? Very individualized. Mm-hmm. Because every human being ages uniquely. Uh, and that, that is part of the problem. We kind of have a one-size-fits-all process. Um, but you have to... You have to deal with that that person um, individually and uniquely because uh, a, a gentleman who's 90 years old, who's been active most of his life, who has been diagnosed with prostate cancer, which is a very slow-growing cancer, um, probably before the prostate cancer would become a health crisis, it would be 10 years. Mm-hmm. Well, are we going to do radical surgery on this man, remove his prostate, make him incontinent, uh, do radiation, uh, cause great harm to his frail body, give him radiation, uh, give him chemotherapy, which are causing him to be sick the last few days of his life. Or do we have a conversation with that gentleman, an open and honest conversation? You have a medical issue. It is serious. How do you want to treat it? What is your desire? What is your plan? And uh, uh, my father passed away uh, in September of this last year. Uh, He was a resident at one of our Baptist home locations. And um, in the last several months of his life, uh, probably the last two years, he had gone through a series of processes where he had had a a lot of uh, melanomas, skin cancer. Mm -hmm. And uh, whenever he would go to see his doctors... They would point out another one. We got to take that off. We got to take that off. And uh, as it turned out, my father spent probably at least monthly trips traveling from Chillicothe, Missouri to Kansas City for uh, skin cancer treatments. And they are not um, unpainful. Hmm. You know, some of the things he had, they basically were just scraping off these layers of these lesions until they got down to. Uh, clean flesh Mm -hmm. and uh, one time I was with him and it was on the top of his head this this spot was they literally had carved a pretty big hole Mm -hmm. in the top of his skin and uh, it was painful and he had to wear a big bandage on it and uh, we got him back to Chillicothe and I got him settled we're sitting there watching uh, a Western program that he loved to watch. And, and he turned and looked at me and he said, son, I'm not doing this anymore. I said, okay, what, what do you mean? They've got, I've got more spots on my shoulders, my arms that they, they want to take those off. He said, none of those doctors will tell me if you don't take that off, I'm going to die in the next month. Mm-hmm. They won't answer that question. Mm-hmm. He said, I feel like a Guinea pig. And he said, and I'm done. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't want to hurt you or your sisters, but I'm done. I said, Dad, you you are in charge. It's your life. It's your body. You know what you want. You know what you can stand. And it's your decision. Mm-hmm. And so I went to our director of nurses, and I called his doctor, his local doctor, and I said, Dad is no longer going to have treatments for these skin cancers. And they all concurred. And it was almost like... <sighs> 
we all knew this was mm-hmm. a nuisance that didn't need to happen, but nobody said no. <laughs> you know, at that right. time, my dad was still making his own healthcare decisions. He was from a generation that you always respected the guy in the white coat. Mm-hmm. And if he told you you had to do something, you just did it. Mm-hmm. And it was difficult for him to come to the place where he no longer, he actually called his doctor and apologized. And uh, it was kind of an ironic situation. But uh, so for my dad, it was not acknowledging him in the process. It was too much acknowledging his health uh, and the potential threats to his health, but not paying attention to what this human being wanted. And it kind of makes sense just the way things are because the medical community, you know, what's their job? Their job is to treat things, you know. Um, Their job is not to make those decisions about, you know, should someone be treated or not. Um, So that's really great that your dad was able to make that Mm -hmm. decision because Mm -hmm. that made it a lot easier on you guys. Absolutely. Yes, it did. Um, So what is good for people to do um, when they can think to prepare for the end of their life? I I mean, when they can think and when they can communicate and make um, really good sound decisions because there might become a time when they can't Right. Think it through and right. communicate, and you want to honor their, you know, how they feel about things. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about that? I, I do, yes. And this is kind of a, a technical answer uh, at first. Everyone needs, particularly as we age, everyone needs a good estate plan. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, when I say that, some folks just turn their ears off immediately. They don't want to talk about it, they don't want to think about it. An estate plan is basically your way of telling the world around you what you do and don't want relative to your life as you get older. Uh, you know, one of the building blocks of an estate plan is a will. Mm-hmm. Uh, 70% of Americans don't have a will. Hmm. Uh, uh, so if, if something happens to you, Someone else has to make those decisions, and it's probably going to be someone who's never met you, doesn't understand who you are at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very important aspect of that is what is called either a living will or a durable power of attorney. And at the Baptist Home, we ask folks to do both. Um, the living will is your statement of, if I encounter this kind of health situation, I want this done, but not this. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's where you can establish that I I I want a DNR. I I want to do not resuscitate. I, if I have a if I have a heart attack or a stroke, and CPR might restore my body, and I don't want that done, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the 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 durable power of attorney then appoints someone to act out those wishes for you, mm-hmm. um, a relative, a friend, uh, someone like that who can help speak for you and advocate for your wishes. We had a situation recently in Chillicothe where um, a member of the community discovered a 92-year-old lady living in a home that was uh, roach and rodent infested. And uh, she sent uh, she sent us photographs of the home. It was horrible. It was horrific. This lady testified to us that when she'd make toast in the morning, she had to scrape the roaches off her toast. Hmm. 
Hmm. This wow. is inhumane. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this lady, who was just a neighbor, took her into her home. Mm-hmm. This lady, 92 years old, had no children. Uh, she had an 86-year-old brother who lived in uh, Washington State. He was unable to come and help. In the process, it became obvious that not only was this little lady in a unhealthy environment, but she had gotten to the place where she cognitively was not connecting to the world around her mm-hmm. sufficiently to make decisions about her own health care. So she's living in this friend's home by the graciousness of her friend, but there's no one to advocate for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the friend says, can the Baptist home take care of her? Well, here's the issue. She had no ability to say yes or no, this, the, the, the 92-year-old lady. Yeah. And there was nothing that said who could make those decisions for her. Mm-hmm. So we could not take her in to our facility. So we reached out to the county. And mm-hmm. uh, in each county, there there's this office called the county administrator. And they are there to help work for people who are, for whatever reason, unable to make their own decisions. Hmm. It took a legal case. This this 92-year-old lady had to be declared incompetent. I mean, it's a a dehumanizing process. Mm -hmm. She was declared incompetent. She was made a ward of the state. This county administrator now becomes her personal representative. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And then the decision was made for her to move to the Baptist home. But because there was nothing established by this lady on her own, mm-hmm. it took about two and a half months to make that process happen. And that mm-hmm. was an expedited example. Mm-hmm. I have seen situations where sometimes the individual is not willing to help themselves. Mm-hmm. And when you try to step into that, it can become a very frightful mess, actually. There's something that the state offers it's like a booklet i forgot i forget which department of the state but it helps you it's like a workbook and you mm-hmm. go through it and you mm-hmm. answer some questions mm-hmm. and basically it's helping you do some of that preparation are you familiar with it i am yes okay there are two two documents one is from the department of health and senior services mm-hmm. and it is a a document on how to put together a uh, a living will Mm-hmm. Uh, and a durable power of attorney. That document is also made available by the State Bar Association, the legal association in the state. And you can get those by writing to them, uh, calling them, and asking for copies of that. Uh, or you could just you could just reach out to the Baptist Home. We have that information. You can make that available as well. We also provide, um, without any charge, what we call a, a wills and trust guide. And basically, it's it's an interview. You fill it out, and it helps you identify who you are as a legal person, also as a medical person. And then that can be taken to a local attorney, and a will or a trust can be developed from that form. But you'll get all the instructions of how to fill out a DPOA uh, and, and other issues that a person needs to, to walk through. Okay. So we can we can help with that, and we we don't expect any remuneration for that. It is just a service of what we've experienced in helping people who have been ill prepared for their aging. Did you see there were two documents from the state? They're they're basically two vendors for the same document. I see. Okay. Yeah. Right. Sorry. Okay. And would that be 
a good place to start for somebody, you know, just the average person who's yes. wanting to make yeah. some preparations? It would be a great place to start. Most of the time now, if you go into the hospital for a surgical procedure mm-hmm. where you're going to be under full anesthesia, they will ask you to fill out a healthcare directive. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you're doing that while you're being prepped for surgery. It's not the best time in the world to, right. to think about, do I want to be resuscitated? Wait a minute, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of other stressors going on. Um, but it is always good to start now. You mm-hmm. know, one of the things that I have seen with the coronavirus pandemic is a heightened interest in those kinds of uh, issues. I think maybe it's because we're all stuck at home and have nowhere to go. Uh, but we are trying to encourage people, please take care of these issues. And one of the most interesting things I have found, people don't work through these documents because they're difficult legally. They don't work through these documents because they're difficult spiritually. Hmm. It requires them to confront the familial issues that they've had that they've just kind of ignored. Mm-hmm. You know, all right, I have four children. And now that this thing says, how do I want to provide for my children from my estate? Well, you know, that one son, I haven't seen him in 25 years. Don't even know how to contact him. Oh, I don't want to deal with that mm-hmm. because it brings up that hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is something that, that really ought to be processed. When working through these forms, do you have to have some knowledge of medical things? Like, it, for example, you know, a ventilator. Do I want to be on a ventilator? Well, I don't even know much about what a ventilator is. Do you have to know some of that stuff? or It would not? be helpful, yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's why it is good to have someone who can kind of walk you through that information. And at the Baptist Home, we have that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can help with that. Um, an attorney may not have that knowledge, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, in fact, most attorneys are not genuinely uh, proficient in estate planning. Uh, it's not a part of the work where they can generate a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And it was not a part of their study in law school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to find someone who truly is an estate uh, planning attorney. And uh, one of the... Uh, verifiers of that in my mind is an organization called NALA, the National Academy of uh, Elder Law Attorneys. Hmm. And, and they they have a process where an attorney has to go through certain uh, classes and training, and then they're certified by them. And we, we, we recommend, the only attorneys we would recommend are attorneys who are approved by NALA. Okay. Well, this is maybe a little bit related to this topic as far as the end of life, and that's the funeral industry, mm-hmm. and perhaps you, you know, have a lot of interaction, per, you know, with the funeral industry. I don't know. I haven't had much interaction with the funeral industry, but I've kind of. I used to be a wedding photographer, so I know about the wedding industry, and I know it's just it's an industry with yes. a lot of different pieces, yes. and he, someone can kind of just get wrapped up into it, and they go from this to this and everyone's telling them well you need to do this you need to do that and sometimes they um, don't realize well I don't have to do things the same way everyone else does I can make my own decisions and you know so do you have any thoughts about the funeral industry about anything that you really appreciate anything that you would like to see changed or things that people can think of think about in advance for um, 
you know, for when they're dealing with that with their parents or or preparing for themselves? I, one, it is an industry. Mm-hmm. It is a for-profit industry. Uh, they are there to provide a service for uh, a financial benefit to them. Mm-hmm. And you just need to keep that in mind. Uh, there are very good practitioners, and there are those who they are serving the bottom line, uh, particularly if it is a, a large corporately owned home. Most of the time, those local personnel, it's almost like you're at McDonald's and they're pushing a button for a number seven, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's all they can do. Um, but I, when I was a pastor, uh, I would offer to go with families to the funeral home. And uh, I always found that the funeral homes who were not open to that were the ones who were the most corporate-minded and the most dollar-minded. Hmm. Those that were open to that, they they saw that I could be a, a good advocate for them uh-huh. uh, or a problem uh, for them. Um, I, I think... I think one of the things that we have to be aware of is is the pre-purchased, pre-planned funeral arrangements. Some of those are almost like buying an insurance policy for a funeral. And uh, the idea is, I'm going to pay for this up front and save money. Well, some of those plans, you're really not paying for your funeral up front. Uh, you're paying for a an amount of money that'll be there for your funeral later. Mm -hmm. And it probably would not be enough to cover those costs. There have been some examples in the state of Missouri where people have paid thousands of dollars only to find out that that funeral plan was no good at all. It's almost like buying um, aftermarket insurance for your car, Mm -hmm. right? You have to find a mechanic who accepts the insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, and if they're not out there, you've you've bought something that has no value. Mm-hmm. Um, in the industry itself, you know, I, I I I will steer clear of saying who I think is the best to do that and be a part of that. But I do think everyone when they one of the problems with with the funeral industry is everybody's in a volatile situation. Mm-hmm. You've right. just lost a loved one, and, and you come in and and you can be very prone to. Uh, over-exaggeration of what mom or dad or Aunt Sally wanted, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, years ago, before my parents uh, uh, moved from the farm, um, they had a pre-purchased funeral arrangement at their local funeral home. Mm-hmm. And I happened to be there for a funeral. Uh, and the funeral director took me into the casket room. And I don't know if you've ever been in a casket room, but it's just like a car lot. Right. I hate to be that mm-hmm. profane, but it really is. You have the really nice cars up front, and they're very expensive, and the caskets are mahogany, and there's brass, and there's maybe even gold inlay and all this stuff. And then they just get cheaper as you go back. And then you have the wholesale lot in the back. And um, the funeral director took me through, and he says, these are my caskets. I said, yeah. And he said, your father has purchased one of these. He said, I'd like you to find his casket for me. You know your dad. So I looked around and, and I went back to what was basically a felt-covered, almost cardboard box. Mm-hmm. And I said, I bet that's my dad's casket. And he said, you're right, that's your dad's mm-hmm. casket. And I'm like, yeah, that's my dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
Now, my mom and dad were both cremated, so they didn't utilize those services, and they were refunded their money by that mm-hmm. funeral home, which was a little unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it is an industry that uh, people just need to understand. Uh, they're trying to make a living, mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, for many of them, they're going to make a very good living. Mm-hmm. And uh, they will most of the time let you spend whatever you want to spend. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes may not let you know without some serious questions uh, that there's a, a cheaper alternative mm-hmm. to what they're providing. A few years ago, I was just kind of reading up on, um, I guess it would be like the alternatives to like the traditional uh-huh. funeral, mm-hmm. everything. Like even people who want to um, make their own casket in mm-hmm. advance, you know, and that could be kind of a, seems like it'd be kind of maybe a profound project just to be working on your own casket. Mm-hmm. And there's plans where you could make it a type of casket that folds flat, stick it on your bed. Someday it'll be there oh, for boy. you. <laughs> <laughs> but or there's even workshops you can go to and in the workshop, you're working on your casket, wow. you know. Wow. So there are these different, um, you know, alternative ways that people do things, but it probably, I think for, I think for something like that to really work well, you it, it's it's hard for someone to do something different, just on their own. Mm-hmm. You almost need like a community who kind of buys mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. this way, mm-hmm. and I don't know of anything ar- around here that's like that, but I've heard of communities, and it could be in like different religious faiths and so forth, where. Um, It'd almost be like, you know, at church you might have a community for what, making meals or doing mm-hmm. this. What well, be a community that helps people when they lose a loved one? And they, um, you know, they gather and they help wash the body. And yeah. they, yeah. Um, and sometimes there might be like a wake or, t- you know, something like that where the loved ones, they um, spend time with the body and friends come and visit. And that might take, you know... Pl- a couple days or so um, and it's a little bit different than your loved one dies and they're they're whisked off I suppose that's how it happens and then yeah. it goes they go to the yeah. morgue I suppose and I don't know too much about this but I've heard that a part of the grieving process that might be helpful might be spending time with the body even when after a couple of days a day or so you, you start realizing the body is starting to decay yeah, yeah. and that might just help with some of that you know putting a final understanding to mm-hmm. your you know the the life of your your yeah. loved one and yeah. their death and um, rather rather than everything being handled by the professionals and it's and it's like you well you get an hour or or two you mm-hmm. know at the mm-hmm. funeral Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. There's just something there well, to kind of think about. I, I, I hear what you're saying. You know, as a pastor for 40 years, um, I watched this process evolve to to take on almost a, certainly the professionalism increased as the costs increased, but also began to take on almost a medical component to it that at the moment of death, the professionals had to come in. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. they had to take care of the body. They, they had, you don't want to, you know, there are things that happen with this body that, that we will take care of. Uh, and what it does is it, it removes the person, I think, too quickly mm-hmm. from their loved one. As a pastor, many years ago, we were in a little town in southern Oklahoma, and uh, I got I got called that uh, one of our one of our church members had been rushed to the hospital, an older gentleman, and uh, so I headed off. It was about a 20, 30 minute drive to the hospital, and I when I got there, he had already passed, and his wife was sitting outside the room in a straight back chair um, uh, in the hallway just weeping unconsolably and I went and, and knelt down beside her held her and listened to her cry and uh, she, she said I miss him so bad already and I could not understand why she wasn't allowed to be in the room hmm. and so I went to the nurse's station and I said is there any reason why she can't be with her husband while we're waiting on the funeral home to come does she have to sit outside in this sterile hallway. You'll need to talk to her doctor. Well, is he here? No, he's already gone. Okay. Well, it was a small town hospital. There were no security. So I just went back to her room, and there's nobody else in the hallway. It's way after midnight. And I just called her by name, and I said, let's go back in the room. Now, they had already come in. They they changed his clothes. They you know, arranged the bed, so it was very formal-looking. And uh, we just went in and sat beside him. And she held his hand, and she cried, and she talked to him like she had done for however many decades they'd been married. And um, later on, uh, the funeral home had arrived. The, the, the doctor came back, and she was still very emotional, very distraught. His answer to her was, why don't you let me get you a room here tonight, and let me get you some medicine so that you can rest. She didn't need to have her brain turned off. She needed to grieve, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I, th- I think the grieving process is something that terrifies the medical profession because mm-hmm. they're not trained to know how to deal with it. You mm-hmm. know, uh, they have kind of a, a kind of a god complex that I was supposed to fix this, mm-hmm. and I didn't. And your crying pricks my sense of guilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really not about them, you know. And uh, so I, you know, I, we don't understand how to let people grieve. Mm-hmm. You know, we're always trying to fix it. Hmm. We're trying to, and uh, I've, I've said to, to various folks as a pastor many times, you need to stop. That weeping, that wailing, that is healthy. That is good. They just lost their husband, their wife, their son or daughter. How else would you expect them to re- respond? And, and some folks even look at those deep emotional outpourings. I've even heard people mistakenly say they, apparently their faith wasn't strong enough to help them through this time. Oh, now, wait a minute. Go read the book of Lamentations. You know, hmm. Jeremiah wept his way through life. Mm-hmm. There are things in life that are so profoundly impactful. That's why God gave us these emotions. You know, they're not outside of him. They are from him to, to help us express the, the depth of our sorrow and the depth of the relationship with that person. And uh, I, I, think, I think the industry of death has 
Well, they've basically given us what we think we want, a very clean, anesthetized process mm-hmm. uh, that's not very messy, you know. Uh, my first encounter with uh, the viewing mm-hmm. or the wake was, was with my grandmother's funeral in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Coming from Oklahoma, you didn't have the viewings, you know. Sometimes those two-day events where, mm-hmm. you know, the family is there and this cavalcade of friends and mm-hmm. loved ones come by. You didn't do that in funeral homes in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. You didn't have viewings at churches. Uh, and in my conservative religious upbringing, you didn't have a wake. I mean, in my world, a wake meant a drunk fest. Hmm. You know, that's what I knew of it. Mm-hmm. And at my grandmother's funeral, my mom told me, I was I was going to be officiating at my grandmother's funeral. And my mom said, now we're going to the funeral home. There's going to be a viewing for five hours tonight. Okay. And then the funeral will be tomorrow at her church. But the viewing is at the funeral home. Okay. So I go and I watch my mom and my aunt stand at my grandmother's casket as all these people came by. And what I first saw looked to me to be too much pain and too much um, exposure of their grief as all these people came by. But as the night wore on, I began to hear the stories that were being told about my grandmother. And, and I was in the line as well. And I met my, my grandmother was a widow, had been a widow since 1965. And she died in 1990. Uh, and uh, I'm listening to these stories. And I met my grandmother's four boyfriends. Oh, really? <laughs> and they didn't know the other one existed. She had a boyfriend to take her shopping. She had a boyfriend to take her to church. She had a boyfriend to take her to the senior center, and they all thought they were her boyfriend. (laughs) So, by the you know, it was physically exhausting Mm -hmm. on on our family, but it was emotionally healing. Mm -hmm. It helped begin the process of remembering, which Mm -hmm. I, I think is strategically important. Uh, in, in the grieving process we have to remember those people mm-hmm. if we don't uh, we will get trapped mm-hmm. you know and sometimes the way we process the death and dying process now can really get in the way of that remembering mm-hmm. uh, uh, I remember early on when um, uh, cremation was becoming popular because quite honestly we are not connected to places anymore you know, mm-hmm. and and it was much more economically feasible. Uh, but those first creations I was a part of, it was handled by an organization that just disposed of a body. Mm-hmm. There was no opportunity for people to to say goodbye. There was no viewing. Uh, there was they wouldn't they didn't even know how to provide a service for the for the person. You just were handed a box. Hmm. That's really yeah. dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. And so at the church, it was here at Windsor that, that I first encountered this the most. What we decided to do was we were going we were going to have a memorial service just like you would if you had a traditional funeral. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we've, some folks got a little bit weirded out because where the casket would normally have been was this box, this urn. Mm-hmm. And we did the same thing we'd always do with a funeral and then have a meal for the family. Because I remember one lady 
she had her husband cremated, and they called her and told her it's time to come pick up the cremains, which is an interesting euphemism. Mm-hmm. And she asked me to go with her. And literally, it was like picking up a dinner at a fast food restaurant. Mm-hmm. They didn't know how to handle it. They just handed her the box and turned around and left. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, that's somehow this has got to be redeemed. You know, yeah. we're, we're missing something here. You know, there's been different revolutions, I guess, or whatever, you, where something was handled strictly by the professionals and then people kind of took it back. Like, uh-huh. I'm thinking one thing, it's just the homeschool movement. Yeah. When we were a young married, a young married couple, uh, we knew of one homeschooled family who homeschooled and they were really odd like wow they they don't send their kids to public school and now it's a pretty common thing a lot of people they've taken what was in the domain of the professionals and they're getting involved so you know it makes me wonder well you know the death is now in the domain of the professionals i wonder if that's something that you know the church or communities could um, be getting more involved in saying, no, we're going to handle this, and they have their own way, and it's maybe, you know, done in a more meaningful way and so forth. I, I, think, you're, I think we are seeing that more and more, and, and I think one of the obligations on the church is to learn how to help in that process, learn how to become an expert in mm-hmm. the process. For example... Um, we have rules and regulations about the burial process. Uh, and, and some of that is for health concerns down mm-hmm. the road. Uh, and if the church is going to step in and say, hey, we're going to help, say the church has, you can open a, a cemetery. There are rules and regulations, but you can take your piece of ground and you can mm-hmm. go have it set up as a cemetery. It's right. not cheap. Uh and then how would you go about that process? How would you help with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I have seen advertisements where, saw this at the funeral home where, where uh, both my mom and dad uh, were taken care of, where the, if you had a cremation, the individual's ashes were commingled in a root ball of a tree. And then you could take the tree and go plant the tree. Uh, thought that was interesting, but I wasn't going to pay them what they wanted for that. So mm-hmm. my sisters and I, we, we each got portion of our parents' ashes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I took mine, and my mother is from Ohio, and uh, we bought a Buckeye tree. And uh, Buckeyes do not naturally grow in Missouri, but I have about a four-foot-tall Buckeye tree now mm-hmm. to remember my mom. Hmm. And when my dad passed... Uh, and I told Dad what I was going to do with Mom's ashes, and he said, "I think that's perfect." And he looked right at me, and he said, "You need to buy a pecan tree for me." So I, I said, "Okay, Pop, we'll do that." So now I have two trees that are not native to Missouri, and mm-hmm. I'm doing everything I can to keep them growing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so my mom and Dad made made a lot of work out of this for me, but uh, yeah. that's that's good. Um, you know, I, I think I think one of the roles that the church can have is to just be present in the process of, of making those decisions, going to the funeral home, however that family wants to do the process. Mm-hmm. Just be there with them because a lot of times the people who are in charge of handling a person's body are not 
trained uh, to handle the spiritual ramifications of that, and they're overwhelmed by it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was—I tried to make myself available as a pastor to be a part of that process. You know, um, hmm. always at the hospital, I always would wait until the funeral home came to pick up the body, mm-hmm. um, and uh, just. That's a tough situation for a family to watch yeah. their loved one be taken away. Right. You know, and uh, at the Baptist home uh, at our location in Ozark, um, you know, that's that's an interesting dynamic when someone dies in a long-term care facility. Hmm. How do you handle that? Because mm-hmm. it's very personal. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is when you see someone wheeled out of your facility, it is a reminder they're coming from me soon. Right. Uh, so what we have found is our residents don't want to be in the dark. They want to know. They want to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. So at our Ozark facility, there's this hallway. It's also where residents are taken to the hospital if they need it. And we let them know when someone has passed. Mm-hmm. Almost always it's at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll let them know uh, at the breakfast meal. And then we'll, they want to know, when's the funeral home coming? And they will line up down that hall. Hmm. Wow. In their wheelchairs, in, their, in a chair, standing. And they will, as that body goes by, they are there to honor them. Hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And it's really, it just, no one said we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. It just evolved. Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing. We, wow. Regardless of whether the family has the funeral for their loved one <coughs> elsewhere, <coughs> we always have a memorial service at the Baptist home mm-hmm. in, our, in our chapels. Mm-hmm. And they're always very well attended. And one of the features of that is the campus pastor will ask for <coughs> other residents to share their thoughts mm-hmm. about this person who's passed away. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating. Hmm. You know, it is yeah. really, really interesting. You know, and it's when the family is there, I, we always try to encourage the family to come to that mm-hmm. because they hear about their mom, their dad, their loved one in a very, very different way. Yeah. You know, which is uh, sometimes surprising, uh, but oftentimes uh, very healing in yeah. the process. I'm going to move over here out of the sun. <laughs> or I might be sorry about it later. Well, let's just talk a little bit more about you personally, Ron. Um, what are you passionate about in your life? Like, what's your, you know, really makes you tick, so to speak? Well, I think it's obvious that one of the deeper aspects of, of uh, who I am is is a passion for um for senior adults, for, mm-hmm. for aging humanity. I, I grew up in the nursing home business, uh, hmm. and that happened by accident. My family were home builders, and um, my, my grandfather and my father were, um, they had a contract with a pharmacy and a medical clinic to build the first licensed nursing home in Oklahoma City. Hmm. 
and somewhere in the process the pharmacist and the doctors realized this wasn't what they thought it was going to be and so they they allowed my grandfather to buy them out and uh, my grandfather said to my dad who was in his early 30s you need to go find out what it takes to run a nursing home because we now own one and from there uh, that grew with our family to owning 10 nursing homes in the Oklahoma City area. Hmm. So I, you know, I came by it naturally. Mm-hmm. And I can remember as a kid growing up, some of my friends talking about older people as if they were aliens who had been dropped off of another planet and and talking about nursing homes as if they were these horrible places that no one would want to go to or be around. And conversely, I was growing up around some of the coolest people I'd ever known in my life, mm-hmm. you know? And I learned things as an adolescent that I, I really didn't need to know, you know? Mm-hmm. I didn't need to know how to chew tobacco, mm-hmm. you know? I didn't need to know how to cheat at cards and pool and, and all those. But I, I learned that. Mm-hmm. But I also learned um, things about faith and, and my relationship with Christ that far outpaced my young years uh, so that is a deep passion for me and still goes on uh, to this day uh, we had a significant transition in leadership at the Baptist home uh, coming up on about a year ago and uh, for those of us who had worked there for any period of time we were we were you know what's it going to be like you know because the entire board changed over our president was retiring. We were going to get a new president. What is this going to look like? And, uh, you know, there were some concerns. And, and it was at that point that I realized I'm not going to go to work for any other industry. This mm-hmm. is what I want to do. Hmm. And then I began to realize the problem with that is nobody else is doing this this way. So I don't think I want to go to work in another nursing care system where I'm going to come home at the end of the day frustrated, uh, hurt, because it was more mechanical than it was passionate. Um, So that is something that will be, it is just how God has shaped me. Mm -hmm. Uh, A second significant change or difference in my life um, for the first time since I was 18 years old, I am no longer Brother Ron to somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, I am just Ron. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I, and my wife has been in this process with me from the very beginning. Uh, we, we met in high school, um, and she has always had this sense of calling to be a pastor's wife mm-hmm. before she and I dated. And, uh, and now we are not that. And it's like, what is it? What does it look like to just go to church mm-hmm. and just be a part? And then you've had this pandemic going on where mm-hmm. we physically can't go to church. How do we? How do we navigate this? Uh, but we have. Uh, we believe uh, that we're going to be a part of, of a local church there in the Ironton area. Hmm. And uh, I don't want to become a deacon. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be. Uh, Anybody who's in charge of making decisions, I, I, I wore that and uh, did my part 
Um, I'm not too sure that my thoughts and views are relevant right now. I think mine are looking backwards too much. But what I do want to do is when Pam and I were in ministry, over the years there were a few families that came alongside us with no um, preconceived plans or we're going to get to know the pastor so we can be in charge of or we can get him to do X. They just befriended us. Mm-hmm. And uh, for most of our ministry, we lived at least 200 miles from our family. Mm-hmm. And so visits with grandparents were difficult for our kids. Um, visits home were, were twice a year. Uh, vacations were going back to see our parents instead of going to Disney World. Um, and now at, at this church in Ironton, the pastor and the music minister are both young men uh, with young families. They're not from Missouri. And I just, I told the pastor the other day, I said, I'm here to just listen. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was a pastor. I'm not going to tell you I know what you're going through because you're in a different world than I'm in. But I can tell you that the human dynamic really hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Things around us have changed, but we, we are still broken. And uh, I said, so if you ever just need to have someone listen to you, I'll be glad to do that. You know, yeah. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to tell you you're making a mistake or that I think you're brilliant because neither of those are true mm-hmm. uh, but I will listen and uh, my wife uh, has the same spirit so we're we're now you know it's like Sunday morning we go to church together mm-hmm. we didn't we didn't do that you know I always went early and now it's just us and um, you know we get up and worships at 11 o'clock and we're like what are we gonna do all morning mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah because it's just yeah. it's just so different right uh but at the same time uh i feel really really calm and and assured that uh stepping away from the responsibility of leadership in a local church uh was the right thing to do Mm -hmm. you know so for someone who is not familiar familiar with our church culture brother so-and-so is the way pastors are commonly referred to right yes yes yeah well, if I can, I'd like to ask you about creeds, and I'll, I'll tell you how this came up. Way back, before I knew you, when you were a pastor at Windsor, I had overheard um, my pastor and someone talking about creeds, mm-hmm. and um, someone mentioned your—I um, could have things all totally wrong, so you can correct me—but your hesitation, like signing you, you know, mm-hmm. to this creed or that creed, and then in preparing for this talk, um, I was looking at, uh, I guess it was the Harbor website, perhaps, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where our only creed is the Bible, I think it says, on there somewhere. So that just piqued my curiosity as far as what are your thoughts about creeds? Um, do you hesitate to say you go by this creed or that creed and why and so forth and just things like that? Sure. I in my education, uh, I, I was—I have been a student of history, both in my undergrad 
uh, up through uh, PhD work. Um, and the one thing, I, I there's a difference between a creed that we affirm. Mm-hmm. In, in Baptist life, we do not like that word creed at all, hmm. right? And uh, it is reflective of the period in history when Baptists came to the forefront and uh, that, you know, those creeds were used many times against people as a mechanism to say, you will believe this and you will state it this way. And, and it was very costly uh, to Baptists. So there, there's, in my mind, there's a difference between a creed, which is a, a, a human attempt to codify what faith and the expression of faith, particularly as a group of people, will look like among us. Mm-hmm. There's a difference in that and creedalism, where that document has taken on a larger-than-life value. Hmm. And, and what defines us is these statements rather than these truths as they are revealed in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, I think one of the things that is interesting uh, among my, uh, my, my Baptist friends and, and colleagues as pastors you know, I often ask them which creed, because they've they've changed, they have morphed throughout history, mm-hmm. uh, and, and right now we're at a period of time in Baptist life where, where we're more enamored with some of those early creeds than we were with some of the latter ones, and and I, I the way I look at it is, there are things of the faith that are absolutely essential and necessary. Um, and those we build our, our principles and our fellowship around. And there are other elements where we have to hold those with a more open hand mm-hmm. and allow some liberty uh, among folks um, so that um, when we come to worship, we uh, we're not a, a body of people who are all unified around some secondary issue. Mm-hmm. All right? I will never forget driving through Pampa, Texas, out in the panhandle of Texas, and I saw a billboard for a church. And I won't, won't use the name of the church, but it, it, you know, such and such church, um, King James Version only, dispensational premillennialist only, and something else. And I'm mm-hmm. like, wow. Hmm. Okay. So to be a part of this church, I have to adhere to those man-made ideas before I can discover the gospel, hmm. before I can have fellowship with you. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So I don't live in Pampa, Texas. If I did, that would not be where I would fellowship. Right. You know, It's kind of the place to go where you find... A lot of other people who think exactly like you, yes. if, if you believed in those yes. things. Yeah, and I, and I, I think one of the problems we have in our culture right now, and we're seeing that expressed on the streets of our cities, is we have become really tribal, mm-hmm. and we only trust people 
who can check off the boxes that we have checked off. Mm -hmm. And occasionally, we don't trust how they check that box. Mm -hmm. And and I don't think that's valuable. Uh, I I don't think that's helpful. I'm always amazed at why Jesus had some of those 12, you know. Uh, I mean, he, he had people who were absolutely considered state terrorists mm-hmm. by, the, by the culture around him. And, and then he had people who were considered absolutely the dregs of society. Mm-hmm. And he brought them all together. And he maintained fellowship with one of them until the very end, you know. Mm-hmm. And without judging him, he said, go and do what you need to do. Uh, and, and I think there's this... There's this balance. Now, I do know that some folks would say, but Ron, you're opening yourself up for people to believe anything. Oh, no, not at all. Not, not at all. I, I think there's a big difference between saying you, you can only use the King James Version and saying Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Mm-hmm. There's a big difference in those things. And we shouldn't make Christianity a caricature of itself by these uh, secondary issues. Right. Yeah, so I can relate to what you're saying about creedalism, uh-huh. putting too much emphasis on a creed that's not a total Christian creed, but more of a particular tradition of Christianity. Right. Right. But then there's, uh, but it sounds like maybe um, you're not excluding creeds 100%. No, 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 no. For example, um, some creeds have come about as a response to heresy, saying, mm-hmm. you know, this is what true Christianity is, and apart from something else that's not true Christianity. Right. And I guess I'm thinking like early uh, full church creeds, like the Apostles' Creed and right. stuff like that. Right. And I've wondered uh, sometimes if that's helpful for um, considering you know, who to share fellowship with, as in, uh, well, recently I've been going to a, a prayer meeting that meets over here in Peavely at the Hermitage. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think I'm the only Protestant who meets over there when I go, but I'm just wondering, uh, you know, so I've kind of wrestled with this. Well, you know, they they do fall into the circle of the Apostles' Creed, for example, but there's some other areas where what they believe uh, just really sounds strange to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've had to kind of think about well, what's primary issues and what's secondary issues. And, and I can't um, know if the people, you know, I can't know for sure if this person is a genuine follower of Jesus. But then again, I can't know that with a Protestant right. either. Right, uh, right. I. To me, hearing you say that, what I what I would say to you is, where else are you going to be able to better refine your faith mm-hmm. than with someone who is outside of that, who has a different opinion? I when I when I went off to college, I went to Oklahoma Baptist because I was going to be a Baptist preacher. Okay, now follow that. Mm-hmm. I went to Oklahoma Baptist because I was going to be a Baptist preacher. That's pretty. That's a pretty locked-in loop. Mm-hmm. And then from my Baptist college life, I was going to go to a Baptist seminary. 
and I was going to study what I had studied in college in greater depth. Right? Mm -hmm. So I was going to become an inch wide and a mile deep. Okay. Hmm. After my first year in college, uh, my, my girlfriend and I uh, decided we wanted to get married. Well, two young people attempting to go to the most expensive school in the state of Oklahoma as newlyweds was going to become unmanageable. Hmm. And I'd come to realize I'm, a, I'm an easily distractible guy. And if I was going to study theology in college, by the time I got to grad school, I was going to be bored. Um, so we transferred to a state school um, that specialized in uh, education and pre-law. <clears throat> My wife was in their education department, and I was in their pre-law department. Now, I, I went from studying theology to studying history, political science, and philosophy. Mm-hmm. in a secular institution. Now, I cannot tell you that I had a single professor whose faith expression was any way remotely similar to mine. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you that I learned my faith hmm. in that context. Mm-hmm. I didn't learn it from them. I didn't learn it under them. I learned it in opposition to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I I remember uh, one class, uh, modern political philosophy, and, and I went to college in the uh, early '80s, uh, and and I can remember walking in, and every day the professor uh, objectified me as, oh here here's the Baptist preacher in the room. Hmm. Now he didn't objectify any other student mm-hmm. based upon their religion or political views. It was just me, and. Uh, it was frustrating, but it was also a real sharpening time for me. So by the time I got to, to grad school in seminary, I didn't have the same depth in the same theological field, mm-hmm. but I began to realize very quickly I could apply that depth in a much broader area of life and and I honestly I think that has served me well and um, I've never my parents did an excellent job of raising us not to be afraid of the world Mm -hmm. not to be afraid of life Um, my father came to Christ uh, shortly before I was born Mm -hmm. so faith was a brand new thing for him and uh, and for our family Um, and one of his mantras was he always reminded us kids, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And he says, if that's true, you don't need to run from the world. You don't need to be afraid of the world. He said, it is your job to seek to transform the world for the gospel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, so I, I would encourage you to keep going back to the hermitage. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, I, I think... Um, I think the gospel uh, demands that. Uh, but that's, mm-hmm. that's Paul in Athens. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when he instead of calling them a bunch of idolaters, he says, "Oh, hey, can I? Can we talk about this unknown God? I'd mm-hmm. love to have that conversation." Whereas it would have been easy to just categorize him and dismiss him. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, 
So it sounds like from your background, you've probably given this some thought to perhaps answer this next question. What gives you, having been exposed to the ideas of the world, the philosophies of the world, what gives you confidence that your beliefs are in line with reality? Wow. As far as like theism and in mm. even partic- in, in particular the Christian, you know, biblical faith. I, my my answer to that would be um, without sounding too mystical, because that's not who I am. Um, the the beliefs that I've come to hold and understand, and the truths that I've learned as they are revealed in Scripture, um, create within me the greatest level of peace and confidence and an assurance um, that I've ever known in my life. And everything else, um, some of it is so variant to that understanding of that truth that that it's just annoying to me. Uh, Other things, like theism, there are some things in that that resonate, but then I can't come to the place where God is that amorphous and undefined. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Scripture says something more than that. You know, the Book of Colossians says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. You know, and uh, so uh, what what has led me to understand that that this way is the best way is not just the ring of truth because that makes me the arbiter and Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not the arbiter of anything but what Paul talked about there's a peace that surpasses understanding Hmm. and uh, and, and the truth of God's word and and, and it's it's frequent it's often Uh, I'll be be honest enough to tell you that sometimes in, in my prayer life and in my devotional life uh, I sometimes do admit to having a tendency to go okay I've read that before mm-hmm. but there are other times when I see that and it's like okay that's new not not in in, in place but in impact mm-hmm. in my mind and heart and uh, nothing else does that mm-hmm. nothing else provides that that sustenance in life um, I went through a time uh, while I was pastor at Windsor where I began to develop serious voice problems mm-hmm. and uh, didn't know what it was, thought it was allergies or laryngitis, went to my doctor and he said, no, he said, there's something else going on. And, and through a, a long period, I uh, found out that I had what is called a... a, a uh, a really strange form of arthritis of the vocal cords. Hmm. And um, I was told by a couple of doctors, you have to find a new career. You will not be able to speak above a whisper if you keep this up. Uh, and I remember coming home, and we were at the dinner table, and our kids were young. And uh, 
we were talking about this and, and, and praying about it, and, and I, I said to Pam, I don't know why, I don't understand what I'm feeling. I don't get this. And uh, she just looked at me and she said, you don't, you don't know what you're feeling. And, and it wasn't a physical thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel anything. I would open my mouth and nothing would come out. Whisper would come out. Hmm. It didn't hurt at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I remember saying to Pam, I don't know what I'm feeling. And I, I meant emotionally. And she looked at me and she said, Ron, you're afraid. And I remembered that was a startling revelation to me. Hmm. And I said, well, that's what that feels like. And she said to me, have you never been afraid? I'm like, no, never. Not, not at this point. I was not raised to be afraid. I grew up in an absolutely confidence-building environment. My parents loved us. They took care of us. Uh, you know, uh, literally, the, I was prepared for the world by, by my parents. That was their great sacrifice for us kids. So I, I didn't have that context. And then I came across that passage by, by David, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Mm-hmm. And that's when it dawned on me uh, why this is going on is inconsequential. Why, why do I have to deal with arthritic vocal cords, of all things, when God's called me to speak? Mm-hmm. That became inconsequential because what I was being called to in that moment was to trust, which is a far greater, far more important issue in life. Will I trust God for this? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I was being advised to do all kinds of things. I, I had an interview with a, a Christian newspaper to maybe become a writer for them, and you know what I realized from that is I can do things that will help me take care of my family. All right, okay, that's off the table. If I can find a way to get a paycheck, then that is no longer a concern. What do I need to learn? Mm-hmm. What do I need to know? And uh, one, it tossed, taught me that ministry cannot be about the ministerial professional. It has to be about everybody. And I had to learn to start trusting other people to, to lead in things that I was being pretty selfish about. Hmm. And it was really, really a good thing. Yeah. So. Well, thanks for that. And thanks for this time to oh, talk with you. Is there anything you want to say in closing as far as contact or website or anything oh, like sure. that? Sure, yeah. It, particularly particularly for the aging issues, I would be glad to visit with anyone at, at any time. Uh, you can find my contact information at uh, www.thebaptisthome.org, T-H-E, baptisthome.org. If you just put in Baptist Home, you're going to get a whole lot of other people. <laughs> so, okay. But my information is on that webpage, and uh, we also have a Facebook page under the Baptist Home, and uh, I would be glad to visit with anyone about anything to do with aging or, or anything we've talked about today. I, I, am, I am a talker. I can, I, can, <laughs> I can prattle on about my own thoughts very easily. So, All right. Well, thanks, Ron. I've enjoyed Thank you. it. Thank you. If you use a podcast app like iTunes, please give a review of Conversations About Life. Thank you.